The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, friends. It's the joy and delight to have all of you. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second to last sermon in our series on Samson, the 12th judge in the book of Judges. And here in chapter 16, Samson is finally defeated. And what brings him down is another ill-advised relationship with a woman. And everyone knows the woman's name, Delilah. And none of you are naming your daughters after her. For a good reason, because Delilah is related to the Hebrew word for night, because with her, a darkness falls upon Samson that he can't escape. And for her and through her, he forfeits everything, all for a love affair. Raising the question is, are love affairs wrong? Obviously, this one is, but are all love affairs wrong? Can an affair, a love affair between a man and a woman be right and good? And beautiful? And the answer is, of course it can. But remember this principle. Uh, The wrong use does not negate the right use. This applies to so much in life, maybe everything, because sin and, and evil ultimately have no life of their own. They are corruptions of something good. To see that, especially go read Hannah Coulter. Do y'all know this novel by Wendell Berry? It's one of my favorites. It's about a woman who is in her 70s. She lives in Port William, Kentucky, and she's looking back on her life and trying to sort through all of her memories, the highs and the lows of her life. And, and she's reflecting upon her love affair with her second husband. She's twice widowed, a man named Nathan. And this is what she says. Watching him and watching myself in my memory now, I know what we were trying to stand for and what I believe we did stand for. The possibility that among the wars, the world's wars and sufferings, two people could love each other for a long time until death and beyond and could make a place for each other that would be a part of their love as their love for each other would be a way of loving their place. This love would be one of the acts of the greater love that holds and cherishes all the world. It's a beautiful quote, but do you hear what she's saying? saying that our love affairs can mysteriously be a part of and even participate in the love affair that God has for this world, and they're meant to be. But that's not what we have with Samson and Delilah, not even close. 
Samson throws everything away for her here in chapter 16. Every single gift of God, the grace of God is forfeited by him, which sounds very similar to what the apostle Paul warns the church at Corinth about in second Corinthians of receiving the grace of God in vain. And so what is that? What does it look like? Three points this morning. First point, a tragic infatuation. Samson's story comprises four chapters. Chapter 13 is his birth. Chapter 14 is his marriage. Chapter 15 is his victory. And here in chapter 16, we have his defeat. And throughout these four chapters, there are four women who are woven throughout it. There's his mother, his wife, a prostitute, and Delilah. And Delilah is the only woman who is named, in part because in her name, we have everything. We know everything in her name, not just who she is, but also what she represents. Because like Samson and all the judges, she's not simply a, a historical person. She is but she's also representative of so much. Samson, as I've told you, like all the judges, is representative of Israel. Through them, we see all of God's people and what they have become, spiritually, morally, culturally. And as I've told you before, Samson's been a downward trajectory from the very start. The first words about him in chapter 14 is Samson went down, and he's continued down in this infatuation since then. So what is this infatuation? It's tragic infatuation. Is it just sex? It certainly is that in part, but that's too simple of a way to read this passage because if he's representative, then so too is his infatuation. I've told you that intermingling, intermarriage, sexual relations with people of a foreign nation in the Old Testament is basically synonymous with unbelief and apostasy with completely walking away from the Lord and turning away from him on every level. And that's Israel. It's exactly what they were doing and had done. And it was killing them on every level of their life, theologically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, culturally, they're dying here. And what that means for us is that none of us are off the hook with this passage. If you're a woman and not a man, just because this is about Samson, who is a man, you're not off the hook. And if you don't struggle with any sort of sexual difficulty or corruption right now in your life, neither are you off the hook. But quickly, let's be honest. Uh, Many of us do struggle with sexual difficulty, corruption. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. Even secular scientists now are recognizing it's terrible and devastating effects upon society. I read a report recently that said anywhere between 46 and 74% of men in modern nations are active pornography users alongside 16 to 41% of women. Now imagine if those top end numbers are accurate. Almost two thirds of men, one third of women. Point is, it's easy in the modern world to be led into sexual corruption. So if that is you, and if those numbers are even close to right, it has to be some of us, maybe many of us. If it is, do not be alone in it. Ask for help, seek help, even from us, especially from us, the church. We will help. We will not shame you. We have helped so many. So please do seek help. But that is somewhat of a side note. It's not the point. The point here is that Samson's sexual philandering is representative of all spiritual and all moral philandering. It's a representative corruption and evil. So again, whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever that tragic infatuation is for you, this text puts its finger on it. 
So consider that. Think about that honestly. Whatever it is that you come back to time and time again, whatever it is that that holds your gaze or, or steals your peace or riddles you with fear and anxiety, whatever it is that you feel like, if I don't have this, my life is nothing. If I don't have this, I am nothing. Whatever it is that you know, given the right circumstances, you just might throw everything away for it. Because whatever that is, that's your tragic infatuation. In fact, that is your God functionally. It could be intangible, could be tangible, but it's there. It's maybe latent within you, but it's something. So Samson is Israel, but not just Israel. Samson is us. And here's the shocking thing. And that is that God still uses Samson to accomplish and to bring about his good and redemptive purposes. He uses people like us in this world for his good, for our good. The Lord, you probably heard this phrase, somehow, I don't know who said it, but the Lord somehow draws straight with crooked sticks. And thanks be to God that he does because that's all the options available to him. It's us, it's our lives, that's all that he has. And thankfully he does. And he takes us in his hand and somehow he draws strength straight to bring about real goodness in this world and in our lives. Even eventually making those people or those things that oppose us look foolish. Which brings me to my second point. And that is a ghastly thing. There is a pattern here that I need to point out to you. And that is that time and time again throughout this story, chapter 14, 15, and even here in 16, Samson looks very compromised because he is. Compromised in all sorts of ways. But the Philistines look foolish and even humorously so. In chapter 14, if you recall, Samson tells a riddle. Philistines can't figure it out. They use his wife to entice him to tell them the riddle's answer. They do. And and they get the answer, but then he kills them all. So their success was actually non-success. And then Samson's wife is given to another man, which those Philistines must have loved. But then Samson takes 300 foxes, ties 150 pairs together with a torch in between and burns down all their fields. So again, the Philistines win, but eventually they lose. They're the winning losers. But then they burn Samson's wife's house down and with her in it, which was another apparent victory for them. But then Samson takes a donkey's jawbone and kills a thousand of them and then sings a song about it afterward. And it's a satirical song one that's meant to mock them in some ways. It's in chapter 15. With the jaw of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. It's supposed to be funny. We don't get it because it doesn't translate well into English, but there's a pun in Hebrew because the Hebrew word donkey and heaps are spelled the same and sound the same. So one scholar translated it this way. With the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in mass. We can make t-shirts. With the jawbone of an ass... I've piled them in mass, and it's meant to make us laugh. All the readers, it's meant to make us laugh, but it's also meant to teach us a very sober point, and that is that the enemies of God are like a joke before him, which is why Samson toys with them as he does throughout chapter 14 and 15. He, he, he toys with them like he toys with Delilah. We didn't read the entire passage, but he toys with her. Three different times he lies to her about the secret of his hair. And three different times, he defeats the Philistines. Three times in chapters 14 and 15, three times here in chapter 16, six times total. Throughout his life, Samson makes a mockery of the Philistines, right up until the point where he breaks his final vow and cuts his hair. So they're one long joke, because that's what the enemies of God are before him. Regardless of how they 
seem to us or feel to us or how frightened or formidable they may be. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you especially need to hear that because you have some very real opposition in your life. The enemies of God historically in the triad that we're, many of us are familiar with are the world, the flesh, meaning our sinful selves, the power of sin within us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the historical triad. But each and every one of those can and does take very specific form in our lives to oppose us and to seek to enslave us, just like the Philistines here. So what is it for you? Who or what is your current enemy or your great opposition? Whether it's a power or a person, whatever it is that seeks to prevent you from flourishing in your life as an image bearer of God. Do you fear that? Do you, do you cower and capitulate to it, to him or to her? Or, or whatever it is, does it have you? Does it make you weep? Does it make you worry? You need to know the Lord does not worry. Does not worry in the face of it. Psalm 2 describes the nations of the world and the kings of the earth as raging against God and then calmly says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Do you know what derision is? It's contemptuous ridicule. It comes from the Latin word that simply means laughable. It's what the Bible often does. It's the way it often speaks. It often does what it does here, which is to use humor to make a very sober point, much like the El Arroyo sign. I love the El Arroyo sign. I drive by it, and so often I laugh. One of them made me laugh recently. It's like this. It said, this too shall pass. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. And I get it, because as you know, I've had a kidney stone. And I, I laugh because I know the pain of a kidney stone, but I also know the pain, the personal and pastoral pain of very real, difficult, and overwhelming situations. And so I get it, and you get it. The Bible wants us to get it. It wants us to laugh and in laugh, open us up to the very sober and unfunny point that Yahweh makes fools of those who rage against him. As one author put it, it is a ghastly thing to make oneself the object of divine laughter. Have you ever heard of Operation Punishment? Uh, any of you all World War II scholars? It was Hitler's name for his bombing campaign against Yugoslavia in World War II. Uh, he wanted to make a, a pact with Yugoslavia, Hitler did, and he did early on, but then the Yugoslavian people rose up and overthrew the government, and they came back to Hitler and said, we'll make a non-aggression pact with you, but we won't accept mere puppet status for you to use however you want, and this threw Hitler into a rage, and so he leveled Belgrade murdered 20,000 or more citizens, and it looked like success. But it delayed his invasion of the Soviet Union by four or five weeks, and then his armies froze in the Russian winter, and his Nazi generals said that they were only three or four weeks short of victory when the winter set in. And so Hitler's success in Yugoslavia contained his defeat in Russia. And why? Why? Because the real Fuhrer who sits in the heavens laughs. That pattern plays out throughout the scriptures, throughout the story, throughout the history of our world, and it may very well be playing out in your life right now, regardless of what opposes you, whether it's some sort of cruel boss, whether it's some abusive ex-spouse, whether it's some sort of sickness, cancer even. Do not lose hope in the face of any enemy, regardless of what it is. And also, do not make yourself the object of divine laughter 
It is a ghastly thing to do. Point three, an eloquent silence. The narrative portions of the Bible, like the the Samson story, they speak to us, but not only in what they say, but also in what they do not say. And there's been an emphasis throughout his story so far that's conspicuously absent from chapter 16. And I wonder if you noticed, if you noticed what was missing. And what it is, is a mention of the spirit of the Lord. Because time and time again, in every part of his story, in all of our sermons previously, the spirit of the Lord has been mentioned. At the beginning of chapter 14, right before Samson tears the line apart, the scriptures say the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then right before, later in chapter 14, when he killed 30 Philistines, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then right before the, he used the jawbone of an ass to pile the Philistines in mass or whatever the song is, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And even when he was a young man, the very end of chapter 13, it says the spirit of the Lord was stirring in Samson. So one time it says that the spirit stirred him. Three times it says that the spirit rushed upon him. Three different times in the rest of the book is the spirit mentioned. But here with Samson, three different times, because it's a special emphasis, a heightened emphasis about the power and presence of God to Samson. So why is it missing here? Why this eloquent silence about the Spirit? It's here in order to show us the difference between a Samson who, at the very least, despite his moral failures and all of his flaws, at least to some degree, to some extent, still relied upon the Lord, still sought him, still even prayed that he would rescue him, as he does at the end of fifteen, chapter 15. The difference between that Samson and this Samson, who is totally untethered from God, which is what happens once his hair is cut. And, and by the way, don't think about his hair as magical. That would be a mistake. Think of his hair as sacramental, as God mediating his presence and his power through a physical thing. And also to think of it as covenantal. Do you remember what a covenant is? I often tell you, we saw a covenant forming ceremony this morning in baptism. A covenant is a relational bond that's so all-encompassing that those who enter into it share one life. A covenant is a union. And prior to having his haircut, Samson, by faith, was still holding on, was still holding on to his union. But here, when his hair is cut for the first time, the sacramental presence of God is gone and the covenant is completely broken. And Samson is all alone for the first time. And he doesn't even know it. In verse 20, the text, look there, the verse there tells us very explicitly what Samson doesn't know. And what he doesn't know is that the Lord and his power is gone. And notice Samson's words in verse 20. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Do you hear how idiosyncratic those words are? Everything he says begins and ends with him because now as far as he knows, as far as it's always been, his life has always begun and ended with him. And so he goes out and thinks that he'll do what will happen before. But no, the Philistines seize him and blind him. They make him physically match the spiritual reality, which is already true of him. And what's been increasingly true of him, because he's been increasingly blind to the tragic infatuation that he has, to the true reason and source of his power and strength, increasingly blind to his own pride, as well as to his growing sense of self-sufficiency. And now here, that's what we have. Samson, self-sufficient, standing on his own two feet in his own power, all alone, enabled and ready to do what is right as he sees right in his own eyes. But now he has no eyes 
And he has no eyes because Israel has had no spiritual eyes for the Lord for so long. And now Samson is no different from them. Blind, bound, and in a prison of his own making. So what about us? What about you? And what about me? This is a picture of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, where he speaks about receiving the grace of God in vain. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is one who knew no sin, but became sin. In other words, he became so fully identified with our sin that at the end of his life, all that was left for him was the cross. And he died in order to fully bear the consequence for our sin in order that we might not be identified with it, but fully identified with the very righteous life that he led for us and brought about God's acceptance of us. So he speaks about forgiveness. He speaks about acceptance. He speaks about an entirely new life that is given to Christians. He says that for those who are in Christ, those who believe in him and baptize into his name, you're a new creation. He says, you are a new creation. Entirely new life has been given to you. New ways of thinking, new ways of loving, new ways of relating to people, new ways of speaking. An entirely new life has been given to you. And here then he speaks about all of that. And he says, do not receive it in vain. Do not receive those gifts in vain. What's vain is what's empty. It's what in the end means nothing to you. And Paul is saying, do not treat the gifts of God like that whatever they may be, forgiveness, acceptance, a new life, whatever it is, do not treat them as if they're nothing, as if they are no real value or worth, as if he is of no real value or worth, as if he makes no difference in your life because he is the difference in your life. Just as he was all the difference in Samson's life. Instead, hold it fast. Hold the grace of God to you fast. That's the language that Jesus uses at the end of the parable of the four soils, which, as you may know, is a, is a story, a parable about four different types of people. The first soil, the first type of person is one who hears the gospel, but, but never really fully hears it and doesn't believe. But the second two soils are different types of people who hear the good news of Jesus, receive it, believe it for a little while, but then something becomes greater. Something in their heart becomes greater, stronger, more desired, more loved, more cherished, Jesus mentions the cares of the world, the riches of the world, the pleasures of this life. Sounds a whole lot like Samson and Delilah and their story. And then these two middle soils, they they stop believing. They stop entrusting themselves to Jesus and they walk away in order to do what is right in their own eyes. Jesus says, no, 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 hold it fast. Hold the word of God fast. Hold the sacramental sign of his presence to you fast. Ultimately, everything that we do and, and, and see here in this altar table, hold the sacramental sign of his presence fast. Do not toy with God. Do not toy with his grace. It is too great. He loves you too much. Samson toys with everything and everyone in this passage. He toys with Delilah like some sort of plaything, but all along she's playing him. That's what the world will do to you. Do not toy with those things. Do not toy with God. He begins toying with her and he ends up toying with God, believing that God's just always there at his disposal until he's received the grace of God in vain and the Lord gives him over to that which he previously protected him from. Do not toy with him. Hold him and his grace to you fast. And if you haven't, and I know many of you haven't, if you haven't, 
do not lose heart. And why? Because of the last verse in our passage here, which says, but the hair of Samson's head began to grow again. Samson couldn't see it. But even though, and what he couldn't see was even though that he had fully abandoned God, God had not fully abandoned him. And here we find a hint of God's presence and a foreshadowing of his plans to draw near to Samson again and to finish what he started in his life. And the Lord can and the Lord will do the very same for you, regardless of what your life is like now, regardless of what your relationship with God is like right now. The grace of God is still available to you. The word of God is still offered to you. The sacramental sign of his presence is still offered to you. So hold it fast. Friends, it's often when we've exhausted all options of self-sufficiency and all of our own strength is completely gone that we finally begin to appreciate the grace of God to us in Christ and all that it is and all that it's worth. It is true life and it is available to you. So receive it. Even this morning, receive it and hold it fast. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that the very spirit of God would rush upon your people this morning, the very spirit that resides and rests upon us all. May you fill us with your spirit that we might hold fast the very words of life to us in and through your son, for we pray in his name. Amen.